This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, movie lovers, welcome back for another Anatomy of Movie here at the Popcorn Doc Network. Today we talk about Queen the Biopic which is actually called Bohemian Rhapsody and the Legend of Freddie Mercury. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. (laughs) That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We're opening up big. If you haven't seen this movie then none of that makes sense. (laughs) Although you should know it because it's, of course, Queen. Mm. We are talking about the men, the myths, the legends here on Anatomy of Movie, the new Brian Singer-directed movie. Two-thirds directed, but we'll talk about that. (laughs) I have Dimitri Panos here today. Hey, movie fans. How are you? Excellent. And Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. Channeling her inner Freddie Mercury for those of you who are watching on video. If not, I'm sure she'll just post a pic on Instagram or something. Yeah. Look out for it. It's it's quite the visual today. Absolutely. And I'm Phil Svitek. Excited to be here. For those of you joining us for the very first time, we are not just a movie review show. Of course, we give our opinions and what we thought about it, but we also go into the nitty-gritty, the storylines, the plot details. So based off of that, you can imagine we're very spoiler-filled. Afterwards, we will talk about how things got made, the box office, the reception, all that good stuff. So we go into lots and lots of details. If you'd like to follow along, we do have a PDF in our description that has our various notes. Sometimes we don't get to everything, but we try to. But at least the the notes are there to fill out the experience. And of course, it's not experience without you. Yes, we're going to be yapping away mostly here today, but that doesn't mean you're excluded from the conversation. You get to comment along whether live with us or on demand, it doesn't matter. It's all good, and we love seeing your guys' comments. We love interacting with you and, and seeing what you thought of movies. It's one of the more rewarding parts that I think we get to do. But before we do any of that, we have to kind of give you an entry point into what we thought of the movies. So, Freddie Mercury first. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed it. It was fun. I was sold on the trailer because I think the trailer did so well in the editing it was one of those music video trailers like sold I mean it's queen everyone loves Bohemian Rhapsody so for that sake I was like yeah I'm definitely gonna watch this went into it the performances were great uh, Rami was fantastic and we'll talk more about him I mean the music was good and I always enjoy finding the real story or somewhat as close to the real story of behind like creative artists people like I have a deep appreciation for creative artists and now a deeper appreciation for queen because it technically wasn't my generation but i knew enough queen because of my old, older siblings so i thank them for that but now i have more bigger significance and understanding of like what they did for music back in the 70s and 80s so yes. thank you there you go 
Dimitri? Yeah, I, I mean, this movie, I found it to be, it, well, it's a good, rocking, crowd-pleasing movie that talks about an iconic band, like, we opened up with something that has become an anthem. Whether you know who Queen is or not, uh, like, you could be a 12-year-old kid, 9 out of 10, that kid has been to either a baseball game, a hockey game, a basketball game, a football game, almost any sporting event where that is used to rally the crowd, to get the crowd going. And then, of course, it becomes uh, we are the champions, right? So they have transcended, uh, you know, they become anthematic, so to speak. And I really enjoyed the focus to that time period uh, very much and and the music. and, And this was a time... Because it was all about innovation and experimentation and rock and roll. Um, the, the Beatles blew the roof off of experimentation in the you know, 60s and going into the 70s. And then when you had bands like Led Zeppelin and then Queen, of course, coming in, then it became, how, what are we going to do that's going to be different for us? And what with Queen, with a lot of other groups later, right? What they turned it into was the live performance, which transcended the album. I'm sure we've all been to many a concert where you see a band live and it's even better than the regular album. And that's a queen. They they polished the hubcaps on the stadium tour, which was becoming huge in the 80s. The stadium tour was big. So I really appreciate how they captured all that, the camaraderie of the band and trying to do something different, and just the fun of the music. Uh, we get to see the tragedy of Freddie Mercury's life, I really, and, and you can appreciate it, and they didn't really, like, it wasn't about that, it really was about the music, the man, and the band, and I appreciated all of the performances, we'll get into that a lot more. So, yeah, ultimately, uh, it was a really good rocking crowd pleaser that had the audience that I was with applauding yeah. after some scenes. So, a lot of fun. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but is there, um, in the promotional posters, do they just have, like, We Will Rock You? Because if they didn't, I, I feel like they didn't take advantage because I believe they delivered on that promise. <laughs> that was a promise of theirs. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, what else can I say as far as that? It, I think... Yeah, I didn't necessarily know going into it. I didn't know the story that much. I knew the music, and that was kind of nice interludes throughout the movie to kind of really get me back into it. And then when the music wasn't there, the drama really kind of propelled it forward, and I, I was sucked into it. And so, I, I, you know, I appreciate what it did. And I think there's a new renewed interest in Queen, you know. And I think it's a... I think it works wonderful, you know, a lot of great performances and, and it it isn't just as much as it is Freddie Mercury. What I like is that it's not just him. It does give enough time to all the other guys and humanizes them. Mm -hmm. It makes them relatable too. Absolutely. And it makes them, especially the earlier part of the movie, you realize the camaraderie, like they all stood up for one another. But it wasn't just them. It was their agent. It was their lawyer. They all, like, took... If Queen took a stance, the manager wasn't going to argue with him. And he stood up for him, not just because it was that person's job. It's because he believed in them. 
And I liked how the band believed in themselves and they would take up the cause. There was a great, like I said, that great friendship and camaraderie. They were family, you know, and of course, families have their ups and downs. We'll talk about that. But that's I appreciate you don't see that often, like in, in movies about bands. They want to show the strife and focus on like the strife a lot. Mm-hmm. You didn't you got a good mix here. But most importantly, you got the band that they were together. Well, one of the big differences about that, that certainly the movie highlighted was they were very much different, but that's what brought them together. And so I, I feel like most bands, they kind of have, they try to have the same goal. They try, overall, they have the same interest. They are the same people. Mm-hmm. Whereas they, from a very early point, identified like, no one of us is the same. And that's what makes this work. We are misfits for the misfits. Yeah, and I liked how they did show that that group dynamic that they're all so individual, but they challenged each other for every song. And I think that's what made they brought the best and worst out of each other. And then I think that it's fun to watch when you push each other in the best way. And that's how we got their music. Absolutely, and they they established that very early on as far as like we're gonna we're gonna do this and. Um, you know, kind of cutting ahead at the end. One of the big resolutions is like every song is going to be written by Queen. No more. Right. This person did this. This person did that. It's just, just Queen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, realizing, you know, from a movie perspective, that they were better as a whole. Yeah. Than and it was a great solidarity too. Um, you know, going into you know a little at least part of the production and getting uh, uh, Brian May and Roger Taylor involved, right? But Brian May, the character in the movie, and I'm sure he was this way in real life. He always listened to Freddie, and he always appreciated. Like if Freddie was going off on somebody, like there was this smirk on Brian May's face, like of number one, you go, man. I'm right, we have your back, is what it was, and I I appreciated that because that was a side that I had never known about the band and Brian May himself and, and uh, or even Roger Taylor. So I, I very much appreciated, it was like a behind the scenes look that, that I felt was true. Well, wh- one of the things I, I guess to, to kick things off is kind of good. It, it really gave the context for Freddie and his life and why, you know, he, he did certain things. So, you know, England, a lot of Europe is still, even to this day, unfortunately racist. And seeing him sort of deal with that and, you know, to boot, he didn't have the best teeth mm-hmm. uh, and all these things. So when, when all that stacked against him and yet he found he found a way to kind of carry on. And when everyone else, i.e. the band and then eventually fans, accepted him for who he was as he was... Um, I think that was a very powerful message of the movie and, uh, you know, for Freddie's life yeah. overall, what he had, because I never realized like how much shit he actually had to deal with on a day to day. Yeah. And I just always like that term, like, Hey, Packy. And he's like, I'm not Pakistani. Mm-hmm. Like you'd always have to like go back and, um, throughout and you're right. And again, with, you know, his appearance, um, obviously the black swan of the family in a sense. Uh, doing his own thing, going out to the clubs, that you know, and he had this uh, th- this passion for writing and music, and he would go to watch the music and perform and think about himself maybe up on stage. I appreciate that because that's what makes well almost almost any performer. It's the tortured artist effect in mm-hmm. a sense. 
Right, and I think it makes his character or just like his personality interesting because of all the obstacles he had to overcome just to get accepted. And then once they realize, you know, he has this talent for writing and singing and performing, then it became more, you know, acceptable for his character. And and I think he got more comfortable with himself throughout the years. And you can you can definitely see that because he, he was overcoming like the social injustice, but now he was just overcoming his creative um, problems in yeah. some self-destructive way. So it, it became more like not an outside problem, but a more internal problem throughout the years. Mm. Well, from his very early performance that we saw in the movie, what I appreciate that it wasn't a perfect performance, and yet he it never slowed him down or hindered him, and then he was able to use that. What I mean specifically, when he's trying to futz with the mic, and he just, for the life of him, can't just get it to be still or whatever and sing into it, he finally just yanks it out and goes with it, which became like his state. It's like, why isn't he holding it? an actual mic why is he holding the arm of a mic and of a stand but it's not in the stand it it just it just is and and on on top of that as well it goes to show the charisma right i mean there was a stage presence to queen uh and to and to freddie mercury himself right and when you see a lot of these great bands there's there's the stage performance that he can't capture an audience that he can he was able to overcome that faux pas, that that technical glitch, let's call it, right? And he was able to overcome it with his charisma, his charm on stage. That people like watched him, and they the, the tides turned, and where they were like going about to boo the shit out of him, then they applauded and they were right in with the music, and he could prance around and dance and get everybody's attention. That shouldn't be ignored about what the charisma and the power that Queen have. Uh, had as they as they um, climbed the charts and became a stadium band to see. That's why people love them. Yeah, I mean, if if I had any criticism of this movie, it's just that I would love to explore some of these moments even deeper. Like to be, I, I think like having if, if this entire production did a TV show for like ten episodes, I think you know that that to me would have been wonderful. Because for example, one of the big sort of i'll call it a turning point but it's all these moments are kind of turning points but bohemian rhapsody when they do that song um you know yes we see struggle of it initially of okay how do we do this we're going over budget uh three weeks behind schedule but then we come up with this and then it's a it, it's a hit well you know uh mike myers character doesn't want to go with it because it's six minutes long and then has the wonderful joke about <laughs> pleasuring his wife and then, but then it's a hit, right? And so, it, you know, it try, tr- kind of truncates these aspects of their life, and I would love to explore them a little bit deeper. Right, I completely agree. I think, not to say it was a humongous issue, but one of my personal issues with this film is that the um, pacing, I, I felt like the first 30 minutes went too fast. We were going through their life, and they were already touring um, in America in the first, like, 20, 25 minutes. So just in pacing, it didn't seem like they like struggled all that much when they were already successful at the top of the film. But I mean, we saw the, the injustice um, and, and discrimination towards Freddie Mercury just a little bit, but it wasn't towards the band as a whole because they were already, you know, successfully touring in, in their music in the first 20 minutes of the film. So I didn't see like the struggle. And then like, so the, I, I think like the first act was really fast and then the second and third act slowed down 
okay, mm-hmm. a significant amount. And I think the pacing um, really shifted, like how, how much did they struggle and how much didn't they? I don't know. See, I, I felt I, I agree there, there was a pacing thing for me as well, but definitely not at the beginning because they weren't. They, they, they were struggling to, to get clubs and go to their clubs in their beat up van. And that and, and at that point, see, and, and that that to me was very interesting as well, because they hadn't had a record. They were just touring. They were just going to clubs to clubs, whoever would book them. And when finally Freddie's like, why don't we just sell this piece of garbage? We need to make an album. We need because that's the way we're going to get bigger. Like if we're getting like our next step is to make an album to get out of these clubs so and get something out of this van. I thought that scene was really funny. Sell the van and, to yeah, make an album. Sell the van to make an album. And I was like, oh, they didn't, you know, a lot of bands you think will hit because they have an album they've toured. They built up to make an album, but they literally at that point had not had an album. And that to me I found very fascinating, something I didn't know. And he was right. Their instincts at the time he was exactly right because coming out with an album helped getting onto the top of the pops. Uh, we, and that was their beginning of that rise. Once people realized what an amazing live band they were, they would go and buy the album, which happens, which by, you know, I think that's the way a lot of music, well, at least back then when music really mattered, if somebody saw a band live, they'd go out and buy the album. It, right. Like, the concert was to advertise the album and get more people to buy it. Um, you know, it was it was really a different time period no, between the seventies and eighties. Almost, almost. Yeah. But it, you know, even that moment happens relatively quick. And I'm yeah. not necessarily knocking the movie. I think ultimately it. The movie did its purpose, where it got me so fascinated that I'd love to explore that because it, it always. It always almost seemed to kind of work out, like whatever decision they made. And the fascinating part about this is that the the whole point that they're going after is they don't make the same decisions and they don't make low risk decisions. They go for it all. Mm. And the fact that in essence it always sort of paid off. Right. And the the only real struggle then became internal. Yeah. Uh, that's what I found fascinating. And not to say that it it wasn't necessarily true. But I would love, like, there's just something for me that I find fascinating about exploring that yeah. sense of optimism, let's say. Right. I like their um, positive attitude whenever they went into it because yeah, it's like, yeah, let's get the studio. And while we're here, let's do whatever crazy shit we can do because it's fun. Why not? And they went all in because it was more like, what do we have to lose? We're not established yet. People don't know us. We're having fun as musicians. And then, you know, so I like that creative, you know, the creativity that they had. Um, because they had nothing to lose, and they were having fun. You well, can tell. I think they well they had they had plenty to lose, but their creativity about it was to give something different. And and going back to an earlier point, Bohemian Rhapsody itself was not a hit. It was their touring that made it a hit. And it was the exact like it wasn't like they hit the charts with Bohemian Rhapsody. It was like number one. People would see them see that song being performed. And go, wow, this is something I've never seen and or heard. Then the album came up. I thought it was a brilliant scene. Uh, and and it, this had to have been one of the two-thirds that Brian Singer directed. When the album came out, and you see them on tour at the various places, and he was doing the Superman 
thing of like, and then you were seeing the reviews, and the reviews were miserable. And they even said like a, a poor man's Led Zeppelin or some things like that. Yet their concerts were so uh, sold out; they were doing so well. So it was a dichotomy that you see of the bad reviews, yet they're gaining popularity because of performance and charisma. And and I did love the fact that they were all in. Together, rarely did somebody go, "Oh, this is crap," and like walk out pissed off at everybody else. I liked how they were really all in on it. One of the sort of most heartfelt moments to me um, was when when Freddie is um, with the girl and he's talking about like his, I believe his Brazilian performance. He's like, "I have no idea," you know. They were into it, but I don't. I don't know if they understood anything. <laughs> and then when they started singing back to me, I thought, like, whoever wrote that or came up with that idea, that inclusion, I think just encapsulates everything, you know, because ultimately, even if you speak Portuguese and you have no idea what the hell Queen's saying, the fact that you can regurgitate it, music at the end of the day is just sounds. Sure. Uh, and that's how much they loved the sound of Queen. Right. You know, whether the lyrics or otherwise, yeah. it, it was just catchy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and also, I like the fact, too, that their first big tour was going to, like, Japan mm-hmm. or China, right? And and when you, when you, again, just putting this in a little bit of context, nobody really heard, uh, because it came up in relatively the same time period, was Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick's Live at Budokan was, was the album that, like, launched their career here in the States with I Want You to Want Me. So when... Queen was like, they didn't go to the States. They went, like, to Asia first. I'm like, yeah, that seems like a lot of people were, like, that's how they became big. And and the fandom over there was really huge overseas, and it took time for it to build here in the States. So I really appreciated that as well. Again, music was much different back then and going into the 80s. Um, so. uh, well, even just the way that you listen to it. I mean, we can do a whole oh, history yeah. of less songs <laughs> to technology. Sure. Well. But don't forget, too, that MTV, because the movie bookends itself with the Live Aid performance, and I remember that concert. It was so big, so blown out by MTV, too. Like, the importance that MTV had to help a band um, you know, become larger than life. Hold, hold and that get radio play because I definitely uh, I want to I want to spend time talking about it, but I want I don't want to disjoint mm-hmm. it. Um, I want to talk about Mary because she's a very integral part to the movie, and it's it's interesting kind of how they explored it. Initially, there there was supposedly some backlash that the trailer didn't have moments of his quote unquote gayness. Um, and Rami said, like, it's a trailer. Calm down. Like, it's, you'll get it. And certainly Mary is the representation of that. It, you know, it starts off as one thing and kind of we, we see the progression. Through their relationship, we see Freddie's progression in life. Um, right. And I want to get kind of get your thoughts on how this all played out. Because at, for me as someone, you know, I, I, I know Freddie and I know kind of just very broad strokes right so i'm like wait he's with a girl <laughs> what's going on here and he seemed really into her mm-hmm. all right and like i liked mary because she was fairly consistent throughout the entire film and but you have a 
bigger and deeper appreciation for her at the end of the film because yeah. she has witnessed everything that Freddie has been there and she's been so completely loyal and you can see that she has always loved freddie for who he was not because he was gay not because he was x y and z but because he was uh who he was as a person and i appreciate her for like acknowledging that and i really liked her and the fact that he had a friend within her and just some, like some person to he that he could confide in um at all low points in, of his life um it she was such an integral part and i had no idea who she was and i appreciate that they highlighted her and the importance of her being in his life yeah i mean let's face it um at least the way that the movie tells it and i don't seem to disbelieve otherwise or go otherwise she was his muse like there was a reason there were these opposites that attract uh he was inspired and somehow she really got his creative juices flowing. Um, but, you know, Lucy Boynton's performance, I thought, was really captivating as well. Um, and Mary is an integral part. And even though, you know, she would get dumped on by him, um, she's so still, <laughs> yeah, and, well, and she still uh, was there. Uh, and it was really actually nice at the end to see them all together as a family, right? And, yeah, because she really, as you said, Marissa, she really did love him. She wasn't upset. It was so funny when she goes, "But you, yeah, I knew that. I knew that. I was wondering when you were going to figure it out and what are we going to do about it? And I just, I do appreciate that there was this love uh, for him, but to a point she wasn't going to take being dumped by him like i can't take this anymore she got her own life but at the end coming through and being there i really appreciated how we spent a lot of time seeing reactions of backstage more so than the audience at wembley yeah. um and she was fantastic she's a really great character well you also have to part part of the thing that's underscored is that this was a very different time and you know when when he makes the request of like essentially be with me and she says like well, what do you want from me um you know in today's day and age obviously someone coming out gay you would you would hope for the most part it's not you know it's like oh it's just a normal tuesday good for you buddy and mm -hmm. i mean that in the sincerest way whereas back then right. that's and especially for someone yeah. of his stature that's a major thing that's happening yeah mm -hmm. um and in fact one of the things that I would have kind of liked to see the movie explore a little bit is the fact that up until net then he was as honest as he could be. Like his 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 whole persona was all about authenticity, and this right. is when he started kind of being more of a recluse and withholding from the world. Right. I don't know. Did you guys have the same sentiment as far as that? I felt it was almost like an exploration. I felt that he knew that he was different. He and. It was it was literally a, almost a coming of age of of seeing like just realizing, huh? Like it was almost like a switch, and it was it was coming of knowledge of of oneself and becoming more aware. And I think that was because of the Freddie Mercury on stage that would help bring that out. <clears throat> you know, his persona on stage uh, compared to his persona uh, in real life, and it was why am I staring? Why am I staring at men? 
you know, I have this beautiful woman here, and then it became time to explore that for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? it became a time of acceptance also because you, you saw so many moments where he was talking to to Mary, and um, and but like literally on the phone while he was paying attention to the guys in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, so you knew that throughout the entire film that like he, he was always thinking about other guys or, you know, um, you know, thinking you know thinking about other guys and but it came to the point where he he had to have that realization that he's bisexual and then explore that even more yeah. well he says he was bisexual but then she says no you're gay you're gay you're gay you're not bisexual and that was for especially of that time period i thought that was a very interesting kind of uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe she understands what bisexuality is versus gay or whatever. They, well, coming from England too, uh, things might have been looked upon differently overseas in Europe than here in the states. Um, but I just like the fact that again, she wasn't going to change him. He wasn't going to change her. Um, but together, they really were needed for one another, and whatever their relationship evolved to. They were still each other's muse and inspiration, which I really appreciate. She didn't give up on him. She didn't, but she obviously wasn't there as much as he would have liked. Right. Because uh, one of the one of the kind of through lines and the reason why the band starts deteriorating is, as he points out, everyone else has wife, you know, some have kids, and he's got nobody. Now, the person that he latches on to is <sighs> certainly not like mm-hmm. Mary. So I want to talk about this. This guy. This guy. <laughs> this guy. Yeah, I don't want to. I want to even want to. I was trying to think, figure out how to describe him, but we'll just call him this guy. This guy. With the full disdain of that sentiment. Yeah. <laughs> so, what did you think of that guy, Marissa? Oh, he. Was, we we witnessed it in real life. The the vampires that latch onto other people because they have nothing else going on in their lives, and it's at first I didn't expect it because the way they established it is like, oh, he could be really supportive of Freddie. He could essentially be a good boyfriend and and confident in that sense. And then when you watch throughout the film, like the reason why he's staying with Freddie is more for selfish reasons rather than love or anything like that. It wasn't supportive emotionally. It wasn't. And in, in the way he twisted even Freddie's, um, you know, business mentality and how he approached music. I was like, this dude's an a-hole. What the hell are you doing? Total. Um, so you see the switch with this guy throughout the entire film. You're like, oh, he's he's poison. He's toxic. And it was very frustrating to see Freddie still with him for so long. Yeah, I mean, he was Queen's Yoko Ono, except Yoko Ono, I'll give more credit, is not being as toxic. And this is Paul Printer. Is this the character? Yeah, Paul, right? So, yeah, and this guy was thrust into a world that he really had no idea about and his ideas were horrible. Everybody else but Freddie was able to see this. And at least it was set up in a way that you can almost understand. To your point, what you were saying about where Freddie says, you have a family, you have this, I really don't. This is as close to him as having a relationship. And we, I mean, he was such a very bad man. <laughs> and what he did, I, I mean, was well, that's, so that's atrocious. What, it's it's yeah. one thing... Uh, you take something like Entourage, which is an HBO show about like a best friend managing, uh, you know, his best friend. <laughs> it, sorry, 
got stuck there. But anyway, the, the point is, like, from that perspective, even though in that show, one of the main characters just makes bad decisions for his friend and, and almost kind of sometimes almost ruins his career, it's from the goodness of his heart. He is trying. Whereas this, that, that pivotal scene where, uh, you know, there's that deal from, I believe, CBS for $4 million, and he gives it to the manager of, like, you should tell him. And he does, and then he basically gets run over by by the oh, bus. Oh, he throws him under a mm-hmm. bus, like a horrible totally. bus. And, you know, if you're going to say anything, like, I never knew what happened to it. Well, Aiden Gillen played uh, John Reed. And John Reed, the way, again, portrayed in the movie, was a major supporter of Freddie and the band. He was a major supporter of Queen. Like, when they were in that that record manager's office... John was like, yeah, I know opera, but yeah, I'm going to stick with that. <laughs> and, Miami. And, and my, yeah, my, Miami well, and, then, and then Miami, um, Jim Beach, who is their lawyer, you know, and when you saw him getting kicked out of the limousine, you felt bad for that John Reed because of how terribly he was thrown under a bus. And I thought there might have been a scene later on in the movie where you know, he said, I'm sorry or something because he was the only person that didn't come back to the family. Mm-hmm. If you were, if you remember and for no fault of his own, he didn't do anything wrong. He was just, oh, my God. When you well, he was toxic, manipulated. He was manipulated. Right. Oh, my God. What was the line? You're firing the wrong or like you're getting yeah. rid of the wrong. You're getting rid of the wrong snake, snake. or something yeah. like that. You're like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and Printer's not good. The hard, The tough part to watch was the fact that he forewarns him, but it takes Freddy so long to figure out who the actual snake is. But it, I thought it was a very powerful line. He says, you know, in that final confrontation when when Mary does tell him about Live Aid, and he's like, so you're kicking me out? And he says, hey, listen, this is not about you. Like, I, I made the mistake, Freddy says. And for him to realize that rather than just be pissed off at anyone else for his mistakes, I thought it was a very important turning point. I agree, and I liked how it was written and performed. And my other favorite line was, you have to promise me that I never see you again. And it, he goes, you promise me I never see you again. And, you know, even when he was trying to blackmail him, I don't care. At this point in my life, I don't care. Yeah. Do what you got to do. And he does, quote unquote, you know, um, obviously, I, I didn't grow up in that time period, so I don't know, like, if that interview actually happened to what effect the ramifications of that. The only thing I can speak of is the tabloids uh, of the time. MTV, uh, Music News with Kurt Loder. Um, yeah, I mean, once it came out, uh, it was big news and Freddie's personality made really big news and if it wasn't for the likes of that collaboration with david bowie under pressure um it's a great song it is and to overcome that adversity um you know and again uh i didn't follow queen obviously knew who they you know you knew them as a band so a lot of the stuff, it was, you know, to me, it was like really fascinating. I liked the apology scene, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I liked, you, you could tell the pride may and Roger Taylor, like, yeah, we're going to, of course, we're going to get back together, but we're going to make them sweat. <laughs> yeah, no, 
I like that because it's a like great scene. it took uh, at this point in the film years, quote unquote, for oh. them to like finally get back together or Freddie to realize his mistakes, come back with his tail tucked between his legs right. and actually like in a sense beg um, for forgiveness, and which is good because that's also very humbling right. because Freddie rose to the top so quick and then he left his friends in the dust yeah. so quick. So uh, I think it was more character building for Freddie for him to have that moment of apology. Yeah. Because you you knew. And like there was a lot of merit to what Freddie said. It's like, we're good together. We, we challenge each other. I was like, yeah, you guys are great together. I bought the scene. Yeah, I told you. you. Know, it was like, earned. It was very it was earned. earned. And when they go outside of the office... What are we doing out here? Oh, Why'd nothing. Why'd you do that? <laughs> nothing. I felt just, like it. I felt like it. <laughs> because, and it's so funny because Freddie, at least, you know, according to the movie, it would make them wait because he was so late. And Brian May put up with it. Like, he would be like, yeah, it's Freddie. It's like, you know, we can't do this without him. And, and it's Freddie. And then once Freddie started to perform, this is what I loved. So Freddie would come in and they'd start doing like the boat, like the, when he was like, well, geez, if you were on time, you would know when they were doing this. And then Freddie's like, he just took the idea and ran with it. And you see Brian going, yeah, if you were like, this is why we love you. Because yeah. you're going to take it and run with it. And it's great. Absolutely. Um, so before we talk about Live Aid, uh, Marissa, I want to give you a chance to kind of give us at least a kind of quick rundown of Fact versus fiction, we'll call it. Yeah. <laughs> of Live Aid? Uh, there's, no, not just, just... not just Live live Aid, but Queen's kind of story. Again, this is a very summarized version of fact versus fiction. Yeah, so the, there were um, some dramatic scenes because we, we had the whole, in the film, the whole deal that um, Freddie had the $4 million deal at CBS. Apparently that was not... It, 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 it was not the, the thing that broke up the band essentially it was really the, the band were t was tired they were touring making music they were just physically tired and they wanted a break and that is why they took a real hiatus not this one conflict scene um that freddie went off and did his, his yeah. own thing and freddie wasn't even the first one to do quote unquote a solo album <laughs> yeah so, exactly there you go and um i believe it was brian may wasn't it i believe so yeah yeah and uh, when they get back together in the film, it, supposedly it's been a good amount of years um, that they performed together. But they were in real life; they were always still together. Um, and it, the, like the last time they performed together on stage, and um, was about eight weeks. That's it compared to years. But they before the live a performance, they were. Um, rehearsing for like a good solid eight weeks already so they, they were always you know working and um on their craft but, but just um, never in right. real life right. it wasn't years they were always together um and then before in, so also in the film freddie tells the band that he has hiv before the live a performance and freddie didn't know it in real life didn't know at the time mm-hmm he, he supposedly wouldn't know until years later. Years later. Um, the other thing that I that I saw was um, that Freddie was already kind of friends with with the two of them, um, and and so when the opportunity came in where they needed a replacement for lead singer, it was suggested Freddie do it as opposed to this um, this audition. They were um, roommates. Uh, actually, <laughs> instead of 
the lead singer quitting, he left the flat. <laughs> and they needed and Freddie went, oh, come in. And so yes, they 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 had known each other. But again, that kind of poetic license I'm okay with because what's more interesting? Like it's it's not such a lie that it's devious. They ended up the three of them got together to form mm-hmm. Queen, right? I don't care. It's from a dramatic sense, the way it plays out. What's what's better? The real life thing that they just needed somebody to come in and pay rent (laughs) or they needed a a lead singer. And he was like, well, get some of my songs. Which interesting enough is uh, the way the way Freddie kind of auditions in the movie is ironically similar to how uh, Rami auditions in, in actual life. Because he, he shows up, uh, he sent them an audition tape, but for one reason or another, they didn't know how to download it. So on the spot, <laughs> he performed for them. And they liked them, so they went with it. But uh, but backtracking a little bit to the Live Aid, um, you know, of note, I really appreciated uh, Freddie's speech about, you know, like, hey, I have this disease, but I'm here to perform and I will dictate how my life goes. I thought that was a very moving speech leading up to Live Aid. And uh, obviously, the singing that happens, it takes on a whole different meaning. And I want to... Here we are. You guys talk about Live Aid. We want to talk about Live Aid? The door is wide open. (laughs) Well, I'll just actually preface that I had no idea about this whole concert of Live Aid. Admittedly, I was, you know, not alive during this time. So I never knew that this was such a huge event so to be exposed to this i was like nah i need to go back and you know watch that yeah, it's all part of the band-aid thing that bob Geldof had started so there was feed the world yeah i remember which was feed the, the world. Which, which is a huge christmas hit and video uh by bringing everybody all together live a too like like a- a- again people forget the power that mtv had at the time so so just a little a little bit of history. So when MTV uh, makes its debut, everybody felt radio industry is done. All right. That didn't happen. And if anything, the music industry exploded because there was a symbiotic relationship between radio station now and MTV where they would see the band play and then people would actually call and request the song to be played on their favorite radio stations. So bands would explode. And then they started doing these concerts and Live Aid was, I mean, they, they ended up doing like Farm Aid and things like that, but Live Aid was all over the world and everybody was watching MTV. And so you had constantly, constantly MTV and their VJs, Martha Quinn and everybody going, Live Aid is here and we're going to be broadcasting from London all over the world. And then radio stations would promote it as well. So when the Live Aid concert came on, it was huge. You had people who were staying home to watch video from around the world, and it wasn't time-synced necessarily, and it would be constantly played. And then instead of playing a band's video, they would show their live aid performance. So, And it wasn't just Queen. I mean, U2 was there. Madonna played. and They were playing all over the world. And well after Live Aid, the actual concert was over, MTV, it was still being promoted heavily because you could see Queen playing We Are the Champions, right? That's what they would use for the, and they would call it the Live Aid performance. I believe their albums sold. They raised so much money 
it, it was incredible. And it really is the power of music and video at the time and yeah. what it was able to accomplish uh, in the day. I, th- I think it was a perfect way to end this movie. I think a lot of things came, movie-wise came to a head with it. Um, good thoughts, good words, good deeds, uh, you know, and kind of the 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 coming back together as a family you know he had his misfits but then his actual family that that got resolved so a lot of things came to a head in that and i i appreciate it marissa what what about you yeah i liked when um you know to end the film with live ap because throughout the entire film you see them just having fun and making music and stuff but you don't see the significance and the relevance of what the music how it affected the audience more so you saw how it affected the band but like what the audience got out of it and then Live Aid really showed once they were finally back together and performing the music, like how deeply it affected everybody and how and it gave the Queen purpose in their music, not just for fun, but actual purpose. And and I like that because it was very significant. And in the, I think the movie also does a great job of showing that because um, also there there's a quote in real life that um, when all the bands were performing before Queen, People were just watching the concert. They weren't actually calling in and making donations because that's what the whole concert was for, was to raise funds and stuff. But once Queen went on stage, then people... Like we're really moved to the point where they were finally donating. Like Queen got them started. Yeah, Freddie Mercury had a speech talking about this is what this is all about. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was an event. It was an event in the 80s. To watch this and to listen to it as well, because if I if if memory serves, they also had it simulcast mm-hmm. on radio stations throughout the world too. So you can get to hear all these bands perform and play, which was you know it was pretty amazing time when yeah. music really mattered. I don't think anything could. But I don't MTV think it was re- good. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, I don't think it could be repeated today. To be quite honest, I mean it they would have, have to take a telethons, lot. But it, yes, yeah, like I mean. You know, just even the people you mentioned. The movie does a wonderful job of setting the stage, pun, <laughs> pun intended. Of, <laughs> as you said, like Madonna and all these people. Like, I mean, the, the the list. If we were to list everyone that got to perform, this, as they said, like this is the who's who's of anybody, and you want to be here. Like, if you're not invited to go, you're nobody. And they had the who, and they had yeah, and so this was made Woodstock just look like an outdoor. Show. Party, yeah. You know? I mean, even Coachella by today's standard, like that, it doesn't necessarily hold up. Right. No, in Coachella, Coachella is not broadcast. No, <laughs> and that's funny because Coachella, maybe in the eighties, would have been a huge MTV deal, huge. Yeah, huge. And like when you talk about, yes, Coachella sells out. I'm not, I'm not belittling Coachella, but if you had, if if Coachella was in the eighties and you had MTV sponsoring it and backing it. It would be worldwide. Like everybody knows about it now, but everybody could get to see it back then. And bands would struggle and fight to get on stage because it wasn't just that performance, it was broadcast. Mm-hmm. You know, I will say one thing about watching Live Aid I, I did forget about the Radio Gaga song. I was like, oh yeah, I think that was, that might have been the last studio album. Um, but yeah, it plays great there and that's that was a video that mtv used to promote that song absolutely all right so what, let's shift gears into more of the production side of things um we kind of teased it at the top so might as well start here 
Brian Singer gets the credit as director. However, uh, he realistically did about two-thirds of it. Dexter Fletcher came in, did about the last third, um, starting in about uh, in December. And that's because, reportedly, there was butting of heads between Rami and Brian Singer. Mm-hmm. Um now, to what extent, I don't know, but uh, it seems like the movie's still getting Brian's support from the standpoint of, hey, at the end of the day, this is a great story, and he wanted to tell it, and if he had to bow out because, you know, his performer needed to be able to do that, to, to bring something to life, then he was okay with it. Right, and there are reports that um, there was some unprofessionalism that was also going on set that Brian Singer, at one point, this is what's been told, threw something at Rami, which is like a big no-no. You don't do any, you know, physical violence on set in that sense. So they batted heads in in that way, not so much creatively, but so there was some unprofessionalism and there were reportedly some days that Brian Singer didn't even show up without any notice, another unprofessionalism um, there. But because, you know, the DGA, which is the union, um, they deemed it, um, that Brian Singer gets sole credit. So it was more union standards that he got the name. Yeah, and I believe, too, there was a lot going on from a personal level with Brian Singer and things. So there are improprieties being reported outside of Bohemian Rhapsody and such. So to your point, if he falls on the sword to make a better production, you know, fine, he gets the credit for it. Uh, it was really interesting, you know, f- this is one thing that Fox has not done. This is not like every, you mentioned the trailer, right? There was a time where putting Brian Singer's name from the man who brought you, uh, usual suspects or whatever, nowhere to be found in marketing, uh, material at all. Not even listed really greatly in the press kit. Yeah, I didn't even realize until I saw the credits on the screen. I was like, oh, Brian directed this? Okay. Yeah, it was was interesting because I saw John Ottman's name as the editor. I'm like, oh, interesting project that normally works with Brian Singer. Oh, Uh, there you go. That makes sense. (laughs) So, lo and behold. Our buddy John. Yeah, you know, speaking of editing, too, since you brought him up, it was fascinating because I think, some of the best editing came when they were showing the the um, the recording of Bohemian Rhapsody, right? Uh, whenever they were using old school tech, like the reel to reels and the editing, uh, or like the sound mixing and what they were showing, and you could just by having John Ottman here talking about, I wish people would learn how to edit old school before they do the new. You could tell that there was a passion for that old school production of music just from the way he would stay on the shot just so the audience could you got a great feel for what it took at that time period to put a song together with that because there were no digital things where you can layer the track rewind (laughs) rewind rewind. well we're actually our tape's getting pretty thin pretty worn down (laughs) yeah They're like, yet, oh, yeah, that's how they did it. <laughs> and yet still the audacity of, like, keep going. Keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, like, t- t- the tape may die, but listen, we're going to get this perfect. Yeah. And if Higher. the tape dies, then <laughs> then it is what it is. And again, it just the experimentation of it all. There's that scene where they have uh, the speaker 
like mm-hmm. on a tied to a rafter and they're like pushing it back and forth and like oh I want the left channel and then I want it to go over here. That was the time, like you know, big stadium bands and experimentation things like Yes or even Led Zeppelin, you know, early seventies. Um, yeah, it was. Yeah, there was more risk being taken. Mm-hmm. It wasn't homogenized. Yeah, you know, they wanted to stand out. Even when you look at groups like U two and even other groups like the Police, wanted or or they even mentioned the Clash, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly too. So. They were, they, it was a very fascinating, interesting, great time of music because disco was on its deathbed and this kind of different music was coming in that ended up, there was punk, which segued into the new wave, but yet rock and roll still existed too. Yeah. Well, speaking of taking risks, uh, just even Ben Hardy's song, how he got to play Roger, he took a big risk. He's like, you know how to play drums? Hell yeah, I do. And goes off and has to learn how to play drums. Mm-hmm. So so that way he's convincing enough to actually play drums. And then, of course, once he got cast in the part, then then he really went to town and, and actually learned how to play drums overall. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about the production. Uh, Marissa, I want to give you a chance to speak um, about... Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a yeah, so the show cool th- showed over in England. but yeah, yeah, the cool thing about this film is that they actually used a lot of the same locations of where they actually, where Queen actually, you know, lived and worked and recorded and stuff. So they, they tried to get as practical as they could be. Um, they, so some locations were the Bovingdon Airfield at Hertz. Sorry, I'm going to butcher this. Hertfordshire. Um, and the Art Deco of uh, some parts of the North London um, back in that time to, to get the feel of the, the town and the area that they were in. But there was actually um, one of the houses, they actually used Freddie Mercury's original house for filming, mm-hmm. which I think was pretty neat. Was that the? Uh, I I loved the part where they're talking and he's like, "You sure you got enough echo in here?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. And so they they took a lot of um because it's the seventies and eighties. They they used a lot of different colors. Um. You know, like from 70s, 75, 78, and eighty two, they made a disco palette of primary colors to get that feel um, of music and that vibe um, visually back then. And then throughout the film, the color changes as um, time progresses and as music gets more updated and visually everything gets more updated too. Well, well even that, the just the transformation of Freddie was something that Rami talked about a lot. He's like, I only knew him as this mustache-wearing machismo guy. And the fact that he, you know, they started with long hair and right. it's a completely different look and you know you're you're exposed to that killer queen era version of him versus right, right. version I, I love the transition from the first year to when now he's in his own house and he turns around and he finally has the nice fresh haircut he's like oh what do you think Gayer. <laughs> so funny it's like no the the place um i thought humor was well done yeah. throughout this entire film, especially with the editing. <laughs> yeah, and 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 again, that's when his persona really came, you know, to light. And again, helped by MTV to get it out there. I mean, that's where many a band's persona was able to come through to everybody's living room, 
basically. You saw bands performing videos and what they were on video ended up translating to being not too, too much difference when you saw a live performance of the band. So, uh, it, it, and again, we, we're just talking about just fascinating times for music. It was really, to me, one of the greatest times for music because it not only was it in everybody's car or beach or whatever in radio, but it was in everybody's living room. And people loved watching videos. We talked about Thriller not too long ago, right? So, and then when you look at what Queen has done and all these other bands, it really, that's where bands, audiences actually got a sense of who these people were in that scene where, like, what do you think of the new haircut? Oh, <laughs> dare. <laughs> like, it was dare. like really funny, you know, to see that transition. But that yeah. became the Freddie Mercury that everybody knew yeah. and loved. Yeah. Absolutely, because um, in a sense, yeah. But before that, um, it was as we talked about just the concerts and whatnot. And so now to see him on television, I think it kind of cements it no different than like the first election where people went from radio to TV. Right. Mm -hmm. So interesting kind of comparison there. And don't forget too, like bands could change from album to album, right? So the look. Well, Queen certainly did. Absolutely, and but it was no different from say the Police. Like from how they looked while while promoting Ghost in the Machine to synchronicity. The same thing with U2. You saw an evolution in fashion, even when you look at bands like Duran Duran, right? Or other bands like Loverboy or your hair bands like Bon Jovi, <laughs> right? Like a lot of it was towards the album that they were promoting and selling the singles for. And then the next album, they would look a little bit different. Like, so there was always, so fashion played a large part of the music back then. And Freddie Mercury was no different. And neither was Queen, to be quite honest with you. Yeah. And speaking of the music, I, I do want to talk, it, it, it seems like for the past, let's say a couple of months, we all we've been really talking about is music movies, which is certainly fine. But uh, it's interesting to see how all these different movies approach music and how they're going to record it and, and showcase it in this. Um, with this movie in particular, they blended essentially three different voices, Freddie's, Rami's, and a Canadian singer who they got um, to to help fill out the voice, I guess, is, is how we're terming it. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but that's, I've never, it's an interesting technique. Uh, it seemed seamless for the most part. Like yeah. it, it seemed like Rami's voice, but at the same time as if he was Freddie. Right. Um, I agree. It's very interesting. I was ha I had a conversation Mark about this Martel. with a friend. That's the Canadians. And give Canada the credit. Yeah. Yay, Mark. Go <laughs> Mark. <laughs> uh, and I think it's really interesting because. Okay, so you're right. We have a Star is Born. It's so good. We have and we have Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, I argue that they're two very different movies, right? So you know, with the Star is Born, it's fictitious. There's no uh, whatever his characters like those people the don't exist right real. which is fine but i understand that th there's a reason behind that to do this you you are tasked with either finding actors who can perform like brian may it's because it's not just about the singing it is about the performance who can play guitar like brian may or play drums like roger taylor or bass um if we get the character i forget his uh john the, the john mm -hmm. 
And so basically you have, do you want to, do you want to give performance up by acting performance up for somebody who can play? So I have no qualms. I don't want to see a cover band necessarily. I want to see good acting. And if I can find the acting that draws me into the, into the movie more. So like Malik's perform, all of their performances drew me into the movie. The music stands for itself because it's queen, right? I don't care if it's lip synced, uh, you know, whatever they, however they designed and engineered it, it's fine. Just like with A Star is Born, Bradley Cooper had a vision and how to do this. And I get drawn in the way he filmed the concert. You get drawn in that they're really singing. You get that, right? Where with Queen, they're a real band. I don't want their music messed up. I want to hear Queen. And I think for the most part, they do a really good job playing guitar, playing the drums, the bass, getting the facial things down. So, yeah, I can see that it's it's lip sync, let's call it. But it didn't bother me because the music really did stand for itself mm-hmm. and makes that passion like people yeah. were clapping. Yeah, and, and, and I, I guess to compare, you know, uh, a third version of it is like a Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, where <laughs> they they are a cover band essentially because it's those people singing those songs. So it's very much, you know, the, I would say maybe there's another gamut, but I think those are our three different types. And I, yeah. You're right. We don't want a cover band for Queen in this case. Right. True. I, actually, it's interesting that you think the lip syncing didn't bother you. It bothered me more so because I have very high expectations for, for musicals and um, people who are performing, quote unquote, live music. Um, I think Rami did a fantastic job and you can't imitate Freddie Mercury's voice. You just can't. Um, he's a legend in, the, in and of himself. So I think good on Rami for taking that challenge. It was distracting because it did, for me personally, take me out of the film. I was like, ah, he's lip syncing. He doesn't have the great voice that Freddie did. And again, like he's not a singer, he's an actor. So we covered a lot of movies where there are singers who can act and there are actors who can sing. And I was kind of hoping that Rami was an actor who could sing, but he was just acting in a sense. I mean, he did sing a little bit, but they mixed his his music. His physical performance was great. Yeah. He got all the movements and the mannerisms and tics of Freddie Mercury. The singing did bother me, though. Yeah, it didn't. I mean, I get it. It didn't. And, it, and it's interesting because I think they were damned if they did, damned if they didn't. Either way. Because then he could be criticized for not sounding enough like Freddie Mercury. And I would rather, again, I don't, in this case... No matter, like, if you were doing a biopic about Led Zeppelin, I don't want to see a cover band of Led Zeppelin. I'd rather you get good actors who can perform and draw me into the performance. So, I, so I'm the, the suspension of disbelief the is, is easier right. when when the music is much more to what you're tuned right. to. Right, and then for Star Wars Born, you understand that motivation, right? And you get sucked into it because you know of the time that was taken care, you know, in the way that that Bradley Cooper filmed it. We're over here. I will say I wasn't as drawn in from a concert perspective, whereas a star is born. I almost felt as if I were backstage or on stage, but over here, it was this ever, this huge cinema scope of what the concert meant of what the stadium tour did. And the music really did carry itself. So when you hear, we will rock you or Bohemian Rhapsody or, Though those were great scenes, 
and they were filmed and edited and put together like really well and a lot of it too reaction especially mm-hmm. at the end from backstage seeing those people um it relied on that for a while yeah, and I think the editing did great for uh, this movie also because <clears throat> I would love to actually see a side-by-side comparison of the Live Aid performance because we know the original concert is available out there and you can see like what cameras they actually cut to. Mm-hmm, and I'd like mm-hmm. to see the side-by-side comparison of if they chose the editing style that it was back when it was live broadcasted. Yeah, I mean, uh, in in some sense, that would, as an editor, that makes your job a lot easier when you're like, okay, great, right. cue that up, and let's go shot by shot. Right, right, right. So, but uh, in, yeah. and in some sense, it does kind of limit them on the creativity if sure. they're reenacting a real event. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm sure there's differences simply because at the end of the day, you're not covering the you're not covering the concert. You're covering the you're covering Queen and, and right. their emotional kind of triumph in this moment towards right. it. So I think it's, I'm sure there's similarities, but there's has to be differences as well. Yeah, even when we're at places like Madison Square Garden, that's the other thing that I was very, I guess, sort of shocked about, that there really wasn't a lot of live video of the band. Well, again, you know, in the 70s and whatnot, you weren't record, you weren't documenting as much, although... Brian May, from what I understand, has a very rich archive in which the production he he just granted to the production once they mm-hmm. once he was on board. Um, but there wasn't a lot to go by outside of things on MTV and whatnot. Uh, but I love the Madison Square Garden, you know, performance, even though it was a Madison Square Garden, but it was great. I mean, I really got and I felt like the clubs were that dark club atmosphere where they were really small and intimate and how they exploded uh onto but their clothes were the big, flamboyant yeah yeah it was it was great i really i it captured a time i felt really well because in a sense this is a period piece movie and really, you know well speaking of capturing audiences <laughs> the movie certainly has captured audiences before we go we, 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 i want to talk a little more too about acting if we can because number one um brian may see what you said what you said lip syncing could take you out of the movie i loved um Gwilym lee as brian may but i come on i can't be the only person who felt many a time that i thought i was watching young howard stern from Private parts. <laughs> he had the hair, the look, but he was, I thought, really good. Now, the opening credits, when you're seeing all the people in it, I see Joe Mazzello. Joe Mazzello. So I'm looking for Joe Mazzello in the movie. And it was about a quarter of the way, almost halfway through, and I'm like going, oh my God, that's the little kid from Jurassic Park is the bass player for Queen. It took me a while. It was like so fun to see him on stage, and he was great. I thought the band members were great. Ben Hardy as Roger was really cool. And when you do the side-by-side comparisons to these people, they, look like they nailed it. With the, They got the hair just right. It was great. Absolutely. It was great. Well, it certainly paid off because it came in number one at the box office. Um, a, lot of, a lot of good stuff here. Um, let's see. $61 million um, as of... Couple days ago, uh, in the United States alone, uh, that's actually changed. It's uh, as of uh, yesterday. Uh, it was yesterday uh, was the 60, eighth. 
Uh, yeah, domestic. To- <laughs> yeah, today's what do I know? Yeah, Yesterday I know. was November seventh. So we were putting yeah, so on they had sixty-five million uh, in. And number one, too, the the movie mm-hmm. well way way over indexed to what tracking had it down as, um, because they they were thinking in the thirties at best at best, and the movie ends up doing uh, fifty-one. So it was a huge opening, uh, $65 million thus far as of yesterday. Um, and then when you look at what it did foreign, $110 million, that was 62. It was almost 63% of the entire gross thus far. That also makes sense because <clears throat> Queen started in the UK. They're legends, it, 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 like worldwide. I, I get it, but I, not, I mean, it's, there are many movies that aren't born of Europe that are so over-indexed overseas that that international box office means something. So when you're 63% of the gross with a worldwide of $176 million, and we're in its first week, so its budget was $52 million, which I thought, that's for that movie? That's it. <laughs> Because yeah. it looked more than 52 to me on screen. and it I've seen been... a lot less for a lot more, let's just say. <laughs> there you have it. That's, that's not too shabby at all. Absolutely. And in the word of mouth on it, this is a fine example of where reviews and audience reactions sort of kind of, th- there's a divide. No. no. The no. fact that it's a six, like 60 on Rotten Tomatoes, oh, that's really a... A on cinema score, so Interesting. certainly a, a, a difference in opinion score. right there. Yeah, and I, you know, when I was reading the reviews, and it's it, it's it's interesting. We talked a little bit about this on Meet the Movie Press, is that people were upset because it wasn't the movie that they wanted. Like people wanted more of the darkness. They wanted more of the, you know, they, they felt it. It was the kid gloves, and I was like, I, that's not the that. In all honesty, how they captured everything, I left. I get it. I didn't need to necessarily see a man withering away in a hospital. I could just rewatch Philadelphia. I want a mu- I want a movie that's going to celebrate the band. And so, and we're an intelligent moviegoers here. We know what's happening. We know that drugs played a part in his life. Mm-hmm. We know that the scandal and the sex and the homosexuality was a major part of his life. And so. And and with the title cards the way they were at the end of the movie, I liked how they used it more as an inspiration because the Feder- the Freddie Mercury Foundation, yeah. the Cure of AIDS. I think I liked how this movie ended. Well, even the, the crisis climax <laughs> moment, it was him him taking and accepting that what he's done may have not been the best, mm-hmm. and he's you know he's gonna quote unquote atone for it, but understands that time is not on his side. But the time that he does have, he's going to do based on what he wants to do, which is perform, and he's going to honor that. Right. Uh, so, if like, why, in essence, it's like a question of why we celebrating death when just because, like, death comes for us all, live instead. Yeah, and, and you could, you can inspire, it's a tra- it's tragedy, I get it. I liked how this movie found at least an inspirational way to document the tragedy of it all. And so much in AIDS has changed yeah. since then, and in part because of him. In the movie, if you stayed, you saw that happen. It was in part because of that foundation. Absolutely. Marissa, what about final thoughts for you? 
Um, I really enjoyed it. It's fun. It's entertaining. It gives you a better... It sheds a better light on what these people were, how they came to be queen. Um, because I didn't grow up with this generation, but I, I knew of queen, but I didn't know queen. And I have a... You know, I, I like I appreciate the people who took the time to actually tell their story because they have a very interesting one. And I, for me, my final thoughts are the fact that I, I yes, there's tragic moments, but they were all nothing in their lives prevented them from being who they are and transcending what, in essence, many people would have expected of them. They were misfits. Right. As they said, they're they misfits for the misfits. Mm. And the fact that someone like Marissa, someone like me, who didn't, who aren't of that age, that are this now interested in Queen, uh, you know, they transcended time, in essence. And mm-hmm. they're able to connect beyond just the, the life that, that Freddie lived. Um, and certainly by by Brian and uh, Roger being involved in the movie, that, that also continues their own legacy right. and so forth so i think there's just a lot to take away there and it doesn't have to be a doom and gloom show all the time despite no. life circumstances right right um to i think last week marissa you and i were talking we were talking about this movie because you had just seen it too and phil i wanted to ask you um if i remember you said you saw it in imax i saw it in imax yeah yes. i saw it in imax a glorious about, IMAX. yeah how about you i saw it on a I saw it in a movie theater. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, but here's the, the the wonderful part is like it's uh, it's it still for me had the rock concert speakers, the loudness. It, you know, I, I'm sure it could have been even better in IMAX, but I didn't. It didn't deteriorate. Like I, yeah. I think it, it fired on all cylinders that way. But need be seen in a theater. Yeah. I mean, because it's that it's that in. Manic. It's it's you know it's rock and roll opera and anthem, and I did too see it in IMAX. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember IMAX made um, there was a special trailer made for IMAX, um, and I saw it in that format and the sound. Uh, yeah, it was amazing to see it like that on a big screen with big sound. It was I, a fun way to yeah, see it. I recommend going to see it in IMAX because you have to know this is going to be a music-filled concert type of experience. Yeah. So I like I purposely chose IMAX because I wanted to enjoy it, and yeah. I sure did. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's go. a good way to watch it, for yeah, sure. It Absolutely. Well, thank you for watching or listening to us, either <laughs> one. Uh, hopefully, we have been music to your ears. <laughs> uh, but, of course, you can let us know your thoughts and opinions. Uh you know, start. We can do basic questions like, "What's your? What is your favorite Queen song? How much do you know about Queen? What did you think of the movie? Does it do them justice? Does it not? Is there something you would have liked to see more of? Anything you want to talk about? It's there for you. That's the comment sections for, and we'll comment back and, and all that good stuff. Um, and as time goes by, don't hesitate to come back to Anatomy of Movie. If there's a movie that you're catching up on, chances are we've probably done it in our history and if you're looking forward to a movie in the future chances are we're going to cover it for example uh next week we're going to be doing um the girl in the spider's web and of course um boy erased i think we're going to do or there's a lot of stuff going on now so we're going to be covering a lot uh so stay tuned to our grinch the grinch stay tuned to our schedules because as we get into the holiday season our timing of things might shift a little bit like we definitely want to cover creed but we're going to be going to Thanksgiving. We're selfish that way. I apologize. <laughs> I already so, have my tickets to Creed, just saying. So we might, we might, you know, shift around. So uh, 
keep tuning back into us um, for more interactions, more direct interactions in our schedule at DMovie1701. That's yep, where absolutely. you can interact with Dimitri at Serafini TV That's for right. Marissa. I'm at Phil Svitek, and of course, this is the Popcorn Talk Network. Thanks, Jeff Grant, for producing us. We'll see you next time on another Anatomy of Movie. Bye, folks. From producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. Please express your inner those of the whole show, not necessarily reflect